Before I begin tonight, let me just uh, remind you, if, if you want to get baptized at our birthday party on the 30th, you need to talk to me tonight, okay? Tonight's the, the deadline, and if you're still wrestling with it, come talk to me anyway. Amy Hall, uh, one of our members, called me last June, and she asked if a little guy in her neighborhood could join the inner city swim team that we've begun. And we'll call him Martin. He's about eight. And uh, we said, sure. And Amy and her neighbors began bringing Martin to practice and making him dinner afterward. He is a naturally gifted athlete. He couldn't swim when we started. Two weeks later, he was uh, getting across the pool. But there was one problem with little Martin. Uh, this was the early time of the summer, and we had a spell that was very, very hot in the mid-90s. And... Uh, Martin was always shivering, and he couldn't make it through the whole workout. He'd get out, and he would just shiver by the side of the pool. Well, Emerald Youth Foundation provides dinners for the children, and we usually eat about 8 o'clock in the meet. And we were driving over, and Martin was kind of bothering me and saying, Hey, can I have mine now? Can I have mine now? I haven't eaten man in two days. And, and I, I said, Martin, come on, you know, let's, let's wait like everybody else. Well, a few weeks later, we found out that Martin's caregiver, uh, this came out in court, um, was trying to, quote, starve the devil out of him. And uh, Martin actually had not eaten in two days. Uh, Martin was shivering because he was malnourished. I spent four nights a week with Martin this summer, but he needed a lot more than that. And uh, at one level, it was a beautiful summer and a beautiful experience. But at another level, I ended very discouraged, uh, just feeling like, how, how do you heal his heart, the family, the, the community that, that, that can allow this to happen? And that's really the question that I want to consider with you this fall, is how do we heal the wounds of the city? How does the church join with God in healing the wounds of the city? We, we know, of course, that there won't be full healing this side of Christ's return, but, but certainly we are to work towards that goal. How do we do it? Jeremiah 29, 4-7 provides a model. And when you open your Bible to Jeremiah 29, Nebuchadnezzar's armies have sacked Jerusalem, dragged its grieving citizens across the desert and dumped them in one of the great and terrifying cities of the ancient world, Babylon. And they hated it and wanted to go home, and prophets uh, came out of the exile community. It was a refugee community living in this amazing, huge city. And the prophets began to say, this is in, Genesis, in Jeremiah 26, 7 and 8, it's okay, God's going to send you back, he's going to judge the Babylonians, pack your bags, uh, get ready to go. Well, Jeremiah heard about this. He was still uh, part of a little remnant back in the ruined city of Jerusalem. And God prompted him to write a letter to the refugee community. And Sandy just read part of it to you tonight. And God tells them, no, you're not going home. As a matter of fact, I want you to unpack I want you to build houses and plant gardens and marry and raise your family and be present in this city that you hate. 
and pray for it and love it and seek its shalom because when it experiences shalom, you will too. Now, this marks a, a significant shift in God's approach towards cities. Now, earlier in the Old Testament, God's redemptive plan focused on the city of Jerusalem. And if you've ever read the Psalms, for example, you, you know that that was the plan, that Jerusalem is to be the joy of the whole earth, Psalm 48.2. And Israel was to live in Jerusalem in a manner that displayed God's glory to the world. But God's strategy changes after Israel is taken into exile. And they are taken to live in this strange and dangerous city. Actually, verse 4 says God sent them into this city. God tells them to be present, to stay put, that they are now exiles, resident aliens, and they are to live that way for the good of the city while remaining holy people. If you're interested in these sorts of things, um, I'd recommend uh, a sermon by Reverend Tim Keller, who is the pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian in Manhattan, that he gave at the Lausanne 2010 conference. And he preaches a sermon on Jeremiah 29, 4-7 as a model for urban mission. It's fascinating. He's also just come out with a textbook called Center Church uh, that I'm finding really helpful. But just one quote, if we can have that up there. He, he says, is there any reason to believe that the model for Israel and Babylon should serve as a model for the church? Yes. In exile, Israel no longer existed in the form of a nation-state with its own government and laws. Instead, it existed as an international community in countercultural counterculture within other nations. This is also now the form of the church, as Peter and James acknowledge when addressing believers as the dispersion and exiles. Now, that's a very important point, because the New Testament draws on the model of exile, to describe our relationship to the world, our relationship to the city, that we are resident aliens. And as we've seen, what God tells his people to do as resident aliens is not to build a ghetto and hide from everyone else. He doesn't tell them to flee and go out in the desert uh, and it'll save them then. He says, be present. And he uses all the words from that period that described just building a life in in a city. And so this is one of the ways that God's people are to bless the city, by practicing presence, by staying put, by putting roots down, by living long and well in the same neighborhood. And when we practice presence, we are imitating Jesus Christ. Jesus saved the world by becoming present in the world. And John describes how Jesus practiced presence. In the 14th verse of the first chapter of his gospel, he says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. I like how the message translates this. The word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. Jesus is not a long-distance savior. He becomes present in the world that he intends to save. He moves into the neighborhood. Now, Paul, in Philippians 2, verses 5 to 8, takes this idea of Christ moving into the neighborhood to save, and then it expands it a little bit. And again, I'm reading from the message translation. 
Think of yourselves the way Christ Jesus thought of himself. He had equal status with God, but didn't think so much of himself that he had to cling to the advantages of that status no matter what. Not at all. When the time came, he set aside the privileges of deity and took on the status of a slave, became human. And having become human, he stayed human. It was an incredibly humbling process. He didn't claim special privileges. Instead, he lived a selfless, obedient life and then died a selfless, obedient death. And the worst kind of death at that, a crucifixion. Now, we call Jesus' sacrificial decision to be present with us in order to save us the incarnation. And so one of the ways that we seek the peace of the city is by practicing what we call incarnational ministry, by being present, by being a neighbor, moving into the neighborhood, staying put. In a little book called God So Loves the City, the authors say, the idea of the incarnation, of walking with and dwelling among people, of identifying with their sufferings, is essential for mission in the city. John Stott, who recently passed away, but uh, is an excellent writer and theologian, offers a helpful definition of incarnational ministry. He says, um, on the one hand, Jesus came to us in our world and assumed the full reality of our humanness. He fraternized with the common people and they flocked around him eagerly. He identified himself with our sorrows, our sins, and our death. On the other hand, in mixing freely with people like us, He never sacrificed or even for one moment compromised his own unique identity. His was the perfection of holy worldliness. And now he sends us out into the world as he was sent into the world. John 17, 18. We have to penetrate other people's worlds as he penetrated ours. The world of their thinking as we struggle to understand their misunderstandings of the gospel. The world of their feeling as we try to empathize with their pain and the world of their living as we sense the humiliation of their social situation. Now, in recent years, uh, this idea of incarnational ministry has come under some criticism. Matter of fact, uh, the last issue of Christianity Today has a a feature article uh, uh, criticizing the use of the term. And there are some good reasons for this, because some people have taken this idea of incarnational ministry and and sort of interpret it to mean that if a Christian is simply there, he or she is doing incarnational ministry. But the problem with that is that incarnational ministry is about more than just being there. Uh, Jesus, of course, did more than that. Uh, Matthew summarizes our Lord's incarnational ministry in Matthew 9.35. Listen to this. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and affliction. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. So Jesus is present in the neighborhood for a purpose. He ministers to physical needs of hurting people and he ministers to the spiritual needs of hurting people. He heals and he preaches the gospel. So when we use the term practicing presence or incarnational ministry, what what I mean by it is being present in the city 
with the ultimate purpose of caring for the physical and spiritual needs of our neighbors as the Spirit leads. And let me say that again. When, when I'm speaking of incarnational ministry, I mean being present in the city with the ultimate purpose of caring for the physical and spiritual needs of our neighbors as led by the Spirit. Now, the last half of the sermon tonight, I want to talk about a few ways that we can be present in the city. The first way is to live in the city. Uh, Drew and Nikki Petty are practicing presence this way. They have moved into one of the city's poorer neighborhoods. And Drew recently wrote me an email uh, describing what that's been like for his family. Drew says, we live one mile from Easttown Mall and are surrounded by spiritually and materially poor folks. We have intentionally become neighbors to them and found ways to serve them and share Christ with them. Joe and his wife and son lived in the rental trailer next door for a year and a half. Joe has a meth addiction. He once beat his father unconscious and left him in a pool of blood. The next folks to move into the rundown trailer had two boys, substance abuse issues, car troubles, and relational troubles. They moved out today. Mike lives in the next trailer up. He is mentally challenged and worked as a custodian for 26 years at a nearby elementary school. Mike was fired for forgetting to vacuum the rugs at the front door of the school and now lives on disability. He comes to my shop almost daily. Adam rented the house across the street and sold drugs while delivering pizza and raising two kids with his girlfriend. I have witnessed him abuse them. My 15-year friendship with Tim and Mammy, two friends who've lived under the poverty line their entire lives, led them to ask us to take in their son, Peyton. It is a humbling opportunity to get to serve these folks. I tell you all these things to say that we have deep convictions that incarnational ministry and suffering with the poor is best lived out among them. Now we can also work in the city as a way of practicing presence. As we saw last week, the Hebrew word for peace is shalom. Uh, It's a big word. It means more than the absence of violence. It's, It's centered in peace with God, but it's more than that. When a city experiences shalom, it enjoys fullness in every dimension of life. And so like the New International Version will translate Jeremiah 29, seek the peace and prosperity of the city. Uh, to kind of get at the broader vision behind the word. And so when, uh, when Dwight Tarwater and Dan Holbrook put their law practices in the city, or when Bruce Charles works to put a factory in the old standard knitting mills building, or when John Beckett goes to work on Gay Street for the Knox County schools, they're practicing incarnational ministry. Uh, they're being present in the city. They're bringing their love and their prayers and their generosity and their witness and their wisdom to the city. And that's good for the city. And they're also bringing jobs to the city. And the people who take those jobs support the restaurants and barbershops and dry cleaners in the city. And they help the city experience peace and prosperity. Now, when I've talked about this in the past, I've often often, uh, heard a question that goes something like this. Doug, I can't believe that God really cares whether Dwight Tarwater puts his office on Gay Street or on Turkey Creek. I mean, certainly God doesn't care about details like where we work, where we live, where we shop. Well, it is a fair question. 
And obviously God cares about everyone in our, in our region. He doesn't love the people on Gay Street more than the people on Turkey Creek. But think about what we've learned about the city over the past 60 years. The inner city, especially the downtown, is the heart of the region. If the inner city dies, the region starts to die. If the inner city becomes morally and spiritually dark, the region becomes morally and spiritually dark. If all the businesses move out of the city to find cheaper rent on farmland farmland further out, we lose the farmland forever and we leave beautiful old buildings haunted and empty. The tax base shrinks because the only people left in the city are the ones who can't afford to get out. And so education suffers and crime increases and the region settles into a kind of economic apartheid. A third way that we can practice presence is by playing in the city. As we saw last week, one of the characteristics of a healed city, according to Isaiah's vision, is public celebrations and happiness. And so one way to be present in the city is to participate in those festivals and support the people who are involved in them. Now again, there is nothing redemptive about coming downtown on a first Friday to hear a concert and getting drunk. But as Christians, we can be faithfully present in the city's festivals. We can participate in them incarnationally. We can come into them as Christ, looking for ways to bless others. We could become a patron of the bookstore. We could begin to collect the art of a particular painter. Uh, We could become regulars at a new restaurant, building relationships with the staff and blessing them. David and Trevetta Johnson have figured out a, a very creative way to be present in the city uh, through play, creativity. Uh, I hope you had a chance to see the new Sentinel story on them last Wednesday. Uh, It was called Backyard Art, Park Ridge Couple Opens Neighborhood Arts Venue. And here's just a couple of lines from the story. David and Trevetta Johnson think the arts can bring people together. It's how they met. That was 40 years ago when they were 15-year-olds in a high school choir in Lubbock, Texas. Now, fun fact... David used to wear these really short Levi shorts. Do you remember, guys, when those were in? And if you go into his house, there's a picture of a, from that. Just, just a, so that's what David caught Trevetta. Now, they, it's a true story. Now, they went to bring their neighborhood together. They want to bring their neighborhood together with a backyard venue for the arts. They've lived in their creaky old restored Victorian for close to three years. A big reason they bought the place was because of the barn in the back which they are now calling Share House, an acronym representing story, hope, art, revelry, and education. I love the arts and what they do for the world, Trevetta said. What she hopes they can do for Park Ridge is demonstrate hospitality, celebrate diversity, and stoke creativity. Good job. That's a good way to practice presence. As Kathy said, another way we can be present in the city is by serving in the city. Uh, There's lots of examples of that in our congregation. Ginger Kilarowski volunteers in the fourth and fifth grade classrooms at the Green Magnet Math and Science Academy where 97% of the children are on reduced or free lunches. And Ginger also mentors a nine-year-old girl there. On Thursday evenings, Andrew Smith and some friends take hamburgers to a homeless camp. Uh, A friend I know, I think Deb has also done this, teaches creative writing at the Volunteer Ministry Center. 
Lynn Charles tutors elementary school children on Wednesdays after school through the Clinton Chapel Just Lead program. Those are all different ways of being present in the city. Two more. Pray in the city. Paul's letter to the Ephesians, which was a fledgling little community of believers struggling to live for Christ in one of the ancient world's major urban centers, provides a theology of urban prayer. We're going to spend the night looking at that theology later in the series. But the essential idea is this. The city is made up of more than meets the eye. Spiritual forces are at work in the city. And some of those forces oppose God's loving purposes for the city. And Paul calls those forces the powers. And they want to destroy human beings and keep them from finding God and flourishing. And so prayer resists the powers and invites God's holy and loving presence into the city. And so when you drive into the city for a morning or evening prayer meeting, you are also practicing presence in a very strategic way. Last, you can worship in the city, like we're doing tonight. All Souls has believed from the beginning that simply worshiping at the heart of the city is a way of blessing the city. And Paul talks about the power of urban worship in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10. And again, I'm reading from the message. Through followers of Jesus like yourselves gathered in churches, the extraordinary plan of God is becoming known and talked about even among the angels. And Paul has just talked about good angels and bad angels in the city. And so the idea is that at a spiritual level, when the church comes together for worship, there is witness to the powers. There, there's, there's some kind of a, a testimony to the glory and grace and truth of God that witnesses to the spiritual realm and has effect on the physical realm. Worship also invites God's presence into the city. Uh, God is seeking worshipers to dwell with. He commands Moses to build him a tabernacle so he can dwell with his people, Exodus 25, verse 8. The psalmist leads the congregation with these words, You are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel, Psalm 22, verse 3. Jesus tells the woman at the well that the Father is seeking those who worship in spirit and truth, John 4, 23. So when we are present in worship, God becomes present with us. And that's one of the reasons we moved into this space, is because we wanted to offer worship in the heart of the city. Uh, Those of you that have been around here a while, remember what our city was like 10 and 15 years ago on a Sunday night, uh, or on any night. It was rather dark. And this building was an empty shell. And sometimes it wasn't empty. Sometimes things were going on in it that, that shouldn't have been going on. And now several hundred people worship here this morning. We're here tonight. And I believe that one of the reasons that the Market Square area is enjoying the blessing and favor of God is because God's people are worshiping in it. It's a witness to the spiritual realm. Well, we did have a good summer over at the pool. We had about 50 kids on the team, and many learned to swim. Some learned to swim faster. But Martin's story continues to haunt me. We had a little banquet at the end of the year, and uh, little Martin won most improved. 
but he never made it to the banquet. And so uh, Katie was taking pictures that night, and we knew where his house was. We drove it over to the house, and uh, the person who was there uh, didn't want to talk to us and said she didn't know where Martin was. Martin's eight, and this is a Sunday night. And I remember lying awake that night thinking, you know, how can it be that an eight-year-old boy can be starving two miles from my office? How can that possibly be? I still lay awake and think about that. Uh, I have not seen Martin since, and neither has Amy Hall. And I don't know what's going to happen to him. But I do know this. Martin tasted just a little bit of Jesus this summer because some Christians are living incarnationally in his neighborhood. Let's pray.